Chapter 14 of the Boy Scouts of the Battle of Saratoga. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Boy Scouts of the Battle of Saratoga by Herbert Carter. Chapter 14 The Drawn Battle. Dan Cushing was not to be turned from his purpose even when he found that his friend had already entered the British lines. His only question was as to how he could get there. He had not been seen by the guard, and, drawing back into the woods, he walked cautiously along to learn how far it might be to the next picket. To his delight he discovered that the sentinels were several rods apart, and each had been stationed on a ridge, with a small hollow, running directly up into the encampment, between them. Lying down on the thicket, he waited. Slowly the minutes passed. Not until it was dark did he make a move. Then, as noiselessly as an Indian, he crept into the hollow, and again paused. No other sound than the regular tread of the soldiers as they tramped to and fro on their beat came to his ears. But both were coming toward him, and, hugging close to the ground, he remained motionless. As he suspected, they did not enter the gully, but on gaining the opposite banks, called to each other, and then turned to retrace their steps. Waiting until their footsteps had nearly died away, he arose and ran swiftly, but without noise, up to the higher ground. He was beyond earshot before the guards again hailed each other, and within the enemy's lines. Unacquainted with the formation of the camp, it required some time for him to locate the headquarters of the commander, and, when he had done this, he was just in time to see a prisoner in the hands of four or five soldiers brought forth and hurried to a log hut. Keeping far enough from the squad to remain unnoticed, yet near enough to hear the conversation, he learned beyond all doubt that the arrested man was his chief. The arrest of the young scout, and the reason for it, soon became known in that part of the encampment, and created no little excitement. It was discussed in tents and barracks, and even at the guardhouse, Therefore, it became easy for the lad to ascertain two facts without in any way attracting attention to himself. He learned that his friend was to be tried the next morning as a spy, and that the general opinion was the trial would be but a form, the condemnation and execution certain. Perhaps this fact prevented the soldiers from taking the punishments of the prisoner into their own hands. Dan, hearing their comments, realized that they were thoroughly angered with the lad who had so completely hoodwinked officers and men for weeks, thwarting their purposes and overwhelming them with misfortunes. But what seemed to anger them more than all was the identity of the lad. To think that that rebel general sent his own son into the tent of our commander and knew all about his plans before we did is enough to make the Pope swear, Captain Howell said to a group of officers. I don't forget that the young rascal twice pulled wool over my eyes, and I like the privilege of putting the rope around his neck. Private as well as officer seemed to entertain much the same ill will toward the prisoner, and it was evident nothing save the assurance that he was to be summarily dealt with kept them from taking his life. After the excitement had subsided somewhat, and the encampment was comparatively quiet, young Cushing made as careful an examination of the building in which his chief was confined as he could, and escaped the notice of the sentinels. The conclusion arrived at was he could do nothing immediately to secure the release of his comrade. I might slip back to camp and let the general know how things are going, he said to himself. He may think of some way to help Philip that don't come into this head of mine. He gained the ravine and was nearly across when he heard a sentinel cry, Who are you down there? 
Speak, or I will fire. He neither spoke nor stirred. Bang! went the gun, and the ball whistled so near his head he could not help dodging. Fortunately he made no sound, but remained quietly where he was. Then came rapid footsteps toward the edge of the opposite bank, and the picket there called out, What is it, Spencer? I heard someone in the gully, and as he didn't answer my challenge, I fired, was the explanation. At that moment the captain of the guard, followed by a squad of men, came running up. Why did you fire? he asked. Spencer told him. We'll start the fellow out, the officer said, and, turning to his men, he ordered them to fire a volley into the ravine. They obeyed, but centered their fire on a spot several yards beyond the lad, and he was not injured. The bullets dislodged some animal, however, they ran up the opposite bank, and, scudding by the sentinel on that side, disappeared in the bushes beyond. It was a fox, he cried. Spencer mistook a fox for a man. Ha ha! And the officer laughed loudly. The men on the other bank joined in the mirth. I don't care, Spencer declared. It shows I was looking out so sharply that even a fox could not escape me. The laugh subsided. The squad returned to their stations, and the pickets resumed their beat. As soon as they had departed, Dan hurried on, and in a few minutes gained the road leading to Bemis Heights. Down this he ran until halted by three hoots of an owl, twice repeated. Stopping suddenly, he gave the same cry, and after a few seconds Leighton and Joe came out from the forest. We are glad to find you at last, they said. We have been looking for you half the night. I'm glad to run in with you, he declared, without asking why they were there. Joe, will you go back to the fort and tell General Shiler that our Ira has been arrested? The Britishers have found out who he is, and tomorrow morning he'll probably be condemned and hanged. Whatever we do must be done quickly. Wait, come with me. We won't give up hope of rescuing him until we have to. In another moment they had separated, Joe hastening to the general with his sad tidings, and Dan late hurrying back toward the British camp. Before gaining the ravine, Dan explained how he had entered the enemy's lines earlier in the night, and how he hoped to return. We shall have to move along slow and quiet-like, he added, but I believe it can be done. He was correct, and a half hour later he and his comrade emerged from the ravine within the British lines. To gain the hut in which their friend was imprisoned was not difficult, but they decided it unwise to run the risk of being found when dawn came, therefore the lads looked about for a hiding place. Attracted by the lean-to at the rear of the barracks, they crept into it. In this place of concealment, they heard enough of the soldiers' conversation to learn the result of Philip's trial, and knew there were yet twenty-four hours before he would be executed. We may be able to do a good bit at that time, Dan whispered to late. They learned also, in the same way, that the prisoner had been brought to the barracks and put in solitary confinement in one of its upper rooms. They also saw David Daggett prowling about the building, but did not know of his visit upstairs, or of the secret resolve he had made. It was nearly dusk when two soldiers met near the door of the lean-to. One said to the other, Have you heard the latest news about the spy? No, replied the other. What is it? A messenger came from the rebel camp under a flag of truce, the first explained, and wanted to make an exchange. They offered four men, a colonel, two captains, and a lieutenant, for him. What did our general say? The other soldier asked. He said, Go back and tell your commander I would not exchange him for your whole army. 
Good. I reckon the rebels will understand now that the young rascal must pay the penalty for his misdeeds. Then they passed out of hearing. It means that you and I have got to do something, Dan said to his comrade in a low tone. What? asked Late. I have an ID, was the answer, but we'll wait a little later to see whether it will work. An hour or two passed. Then Dan whispered, Come, Late, and he led the way out of the building. Going around to the rear end, he said in the same low tone, Boost me. That edge of the roof was not more than five feet from the ground, and, catching hold of it, the lad waited for his companion to lift him up. In another instant, he was on top of the shed. Give me your hands, Late, he said in a hoarse whisper, and soon the two were on the roof. Lying at full length, the lads listened anxiously for any sound which might be token that their movements had been seen. Ten minutes passed, and then they arose on all fours, creeping up the slanting roof to where it joined the main building. Just above their heads was an open window. Rising to their knees, they peeped in, only to find themselves looking into a small, unoccupied room. Laying his hand upon his comrade in token that he was to follow, Dan stepped into the chamber, late joining him a moment later. There was no furniture in the room. The young scouts stretched themselves out on the bare floor and again waited. During a long time there was coming and going about the barracks, then loud conversation below. But at length all was silent. Dan went cautiously to the door. Lifting the latch slowly, he pulled, and without further effort on his part, the door swung open a few inches. Through the narrow crevice, the lad gazed. He could see little, but the low tread of the sentinel outside of the prisoner's door reached his ears. Evidently a long passage was before him, and the soldier was at the farther end. Turning to his companion, Dan whispered in his ear, and then both, removing their boots, went softly out into the hall. Inch by inch they advanced until within a few feet of the guard. Here they waited until he, in his efforts to keep awake, came down the passage toward them. In another moment they had seized him as previously planned, one by the feet, and the other by the throat. There was a struggle, but it was brief and noiseless, for while one lad choked the fellow, the other lifted him from the floor. Fortunately he was not heavy, and could be easily subdued. When the Britisher had been rendered helpless, Late took him in charge, while Dan examined at the door of the room in which was the prisoner. He could hardly believe his good fortune when he found the fastening to be only a piece of iron thrust through the handle of the latch. Pulling out the bar, he opened the door and entered. While an arrow bed against the opposite wall, the young lieutenant was quietly sleeping, but with the first movement of his rescuer, he was aroused, asking, Who is it? Hush, was the cautious reply. Late and me have overpowered the guard. Wait until we put him in your bed. Then we'll be off. The lad went back to his comrade, and together they carried the soldier, still unconscious because of having been choked so severely, into the chamber. The lieutenant helped them bind the Britisher's hands and feet, and to muffle his mouth so that he could not cry out. Then all three left the room, fastening the door behind them. Down the hall, into a little room in its rear, and out of the window upon the roof of the lean-to they went cautiously. At this moment they heard footsteps not far away, and laid down on the slanting roof. The intruder evidently crawled into the shed, and, believing he had gone there for the night, the fugitives slipped down to the lower edge of the building, when, swinging themselves to the ground, they made off through the darkness. The young scouts were at the mouth of the ravine when the cry of fire startled them. 
Looking back, they saw that the lean-to they had just left was in flames. During a moment, they silently gazed at the burning building, and then Dan said, The whole barracks will go. I hope that guard may get out, Wade added. The fellow we heard crawling into the shed set fire to it, and I'll tell you who he was, Philip said solemnly. Who? Dan asked. David Daggett, the lieutenant replied, and then told of the old man's visit and his wish that he might be burned at the stake. We saw him prowling round the lean-to in the afternoon, Dan explained, and that's what he was planning for. You hit the nail on the head, Ira, I mean Phil, this time. The rescued lad laughed. No more Ira, please. It is Phil for you always. I shall never forget this night's work of yours, nor will my father and mother, and his voice grew tremulous as he pronounced the last word. Then they continued the flight. Possibly the glare of the fire through the trees chained the attention of the guards. Then they continued the flight. Possibly the glare of the fire through the trees chained the attention of the guards. At least, they gave no special heed to what was going on in the ravine below them, and the fugitives passed through it unchallenged. Once outside, it was only necessary to walk rapidly for an hour, and they had arrived at the Continental Camp. General Schuyler met his son as one come from the dead, while Joe's delight knew no bounds. I only wish I could have been there to help in the rescue, he said over and over again. Even General Gates, when introduced to the young lieutenant, congratulated him on his escape, and said, I did not understand that the young toy was held to secure her safety. Had I known it, he would not have been allowed to go free. Early next day, it became evident that General Burgoyne was preparing for some desperate move. Before night, he advanced his lines within two miles of the Continentals, and the skirmishing parties sent out from the entrenchments of the latter reported that the British forces were resting on their guns. It means that on the morrow he will attempt to force his way to Albany, General Schuyler said to General Gates. Well, if you really think so, the officer replied indifferently, you may notify my subordinates to stand ready to stop him. And at an early hour he sought his bed. Not another officer closed his eyes that night, and when the memorable 19th day of September dawned, it found the rival hosts confronting each other. The main body of the Continentals was on the right under General Lincoln, the left under Poor. The center was mainly made up of Lawrence's brigade. Morgan's riflemen and Dearborn's infantry stood under Arnold, who had returned from Fort Stanwix, on the heights, nearly a mile from the river. At ten o'clock, General Burgoyne advanced his army in three columns, the left consisting of artillery under General Phillips and Hessians under General Rhinesville. The center and right were commanded by Burgoyne himself, but covered by General Fraser and Colonel Brayman. The Canadians and Indians were sent forward to occupy the Continentals in front. No order came from General Gates for his forces to advance, and Colonel Arnold, growing desperate, rode off to the commander's tent urging him to allow the troops to engage the enemy, until he finally gave orders for the Indians to be driven back. Taking this as permission for a general charge, the Continentals rushed like a mountain torrent upon the foe. Arnold, with Morgan's assistance, held Fraser while he was endeavoring to reach the American rear. Here the fighting became desperate, but the Patriots, encountering the British under Burgoyne, and played on by Phillips's guns, were, at three o'clock, forced back into line. For four or five hours, Colonel Arnold had maintained the fight with the choicest English regiments. A lull now occurred, during which both armies drew breath. 
It's been tough work, Lieutenant, Dan Cushing said to Philip Schuyler as he wiped the sweat from his brow. Yes, the lad replied, and our comrades are all right. When the fighting ceased, they went down into the ravine for a drink of water. They'll be back before the lull is over. They will have to hurry then, for the redcoats are coming again. And here are the boys, was the laughing reply as the lads arrived. The Continentals kept within their camp until their foes were close upon them, then, springing out, drove them back to the position they had occupied earlier in the day. It was, however, not an easy task, and night came by the time it was accomplished, putting an end to the conflict. The Continentals withdrew to their entrenchments. The British lay on the battlefield. Both parties claimed the victory, but the British had failed to force their way to Albany, while the Americans held their ground. It was, therefore, a drawn battle, in which the losses of the Yankees were less than 300, while those of the King's troops were more than 500. End of chapter 14